Open your Bibles, please, to John chapter 7. And tonight we're going to be in verses 25 through 36. Last week we heard the Lord Jesus Christ take on the Jews who were marveling at his expert handling of the scriptures when he had never been to one of their accredited rabbinical schools. And then he upended, upended their rationale for plotting to kill him. He said, you seek to kill me for healing a man on the Sabbath. And yet you yourselves circumcise an infant boy on the Sabbath. You perform that surgery on him on the Sabbath for his good. I made a man entirely whole on the Sabbath for his good. Stop judging according to appearance and judge with righteous judgment or judge rightly. Now let's pick up tonight at verse 25 and learn how the Lord Jesus goes right to the core of the Jews' antagonism toward him. Hear now the word of God. So some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, Is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? And look, he is speaking openly. And they are saying nothing to him. Do the rulers truly know that this is the Christ? However, we know where this man is from. But whenever the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. Then Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I'm from, and I have not come of myself. But he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to seize him. Yet no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. But many of the crowd believed in him and they were saying, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than this man did? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering these things about him and the chief priest and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Therefore Jesus said, For a little while longer... I am with you. Then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Jews then said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Is he intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is the statement that he said? You'll seek me and will not find me and where I am you cannot come in verses 25 and 27 we just read we see the Jerusalem crowd's confusion there are three groups in this portion of scripture tonight one group we'll call the, the people of Jerusalem. That is the citizens of Jerusalem. The people who live there. The residents. And then there's always the Jews. The religious leaders. The elites. And then there's the crowd. Now remember the crowd has come for the Feast of Booths. They don't live at Jerusalem. So you have three 
different groups. And we're going to see how all these work out tonight. The people of Jerusalem are aware of the Pharisees' plot or the Jews' plot to kill Jesus. The crowd isn't aware of the Jews' plot because they don't live there. They've just come in for a week and they know nothing about this. That's why last week when Jesus was saying, you're seeking to kill me, it's the crowd who said, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Because they, they knew nothing about that plot. So they feared he was out of his head. But the people in Jerusalem, the ones who live there, are aware of this plot to kill Jesus because apparently the Jews have made no effort to keep their plans secret. And look what they say in verse 26. And they say, or in verse 25 rather, they say, so some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? And look, he's speaking openly or he's speaking boldly. Your translation might say. In other words, he's speaking without fear. The word means speaking like someone who is sitting in his own house. He's speaking openly. And they, that is the Jews, are saying nothing to him. Their mouths are shut. He shut them. Do the rulers truly know that this is the Christ? Or, you might read that, do the rulers know that this is truly the Christ? In other words, have they come to their conclusion? Remember, they're afraid to state their opinion about Jesus because the Sanhedrin's not made their official pronouncement yet. And so they're beginning to wonder, well, have they made their decision and have they decided that he really is the Christ and they're not going to speak against him anymore? They're confused but look at verse 27. They immediately discard that idea that Jesus might be the Christ. However, we know where this man is from. And where do they think he's from? Nazareth. We know where this man is from. But whenever the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. Now, wait a minute. When the wise men came to Herod and they said, where is he who is born king of the Jews that we may worship him? Herod called in all of the scribes and the Pharisees and asked them, where is the Christ to be born? And they said, Bethlehem. So they know where the Christ is to be born. So why would the crowd or the, the people from Jerusalem then say, but when the Christ appears, no one knows where he's from. Apparently it's from bad rabbinical teaching. Uh, a danger that every preacher and teacher has to watch out for is to try to come up with something original. And the scribes were as susceptible to that as anybody else. To try to come up with a new interpretation. To find something that no one's seen before. So when you look at Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 which Jonathan referred to this morning. It says, and the Lord you seek will suddenly appear in his temple. And apparently there was this notion that had been taught to these people. That when the Messiah comes he just appears suddenly in the temple. With all the glory of David his father. 
and begins to establish the new kingdom of Israel. The, the new messianic age. The new age of glory for Israel. So they're wrong. The Bible's made it very plain, and, and you're going to see it again down in verse 40, that others tell them, no, we know where the Messiah is going to be born. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. But this man's from Nazareth. At least that's what they think. And then what you have in verses 28 through 29 is Jesus contradicts them when they say that they know where he's from. When they say, we know where this man is from, it's a word here that means complete understanding. Thorough understanding. So we know this man and we completely and confidently and thoroughly know that he's from Nazareth. But look at verses 28 and 29. Then Jesus cried out in the temple. Notice, cried out in the temple. He's been teaching in the temple. He did fulfill Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. They were seeking him. They were seeking to try to kill him. And, and Malachi 3 1 says, The Lord whom you seek will suddenly appear in his temple. When Jesus came up to Jerusalem in the middle of the feast, he went straight to the temple and began teaching publicly in the temple. So he's already fulfilled that prophecy. And Jesus now is in the temple and he cries out, which means this with a loud voice so they all can hear him. You both know me and know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. Now, if we're not careful on first reading, we'll miss what Jesus is saying here. It appears like he's agreeing with them that they do know where he's from. But he's not agreeing with them. He's being ironic. Yeah, you know me and you know where I'm from. No, you think you know me and you think you know where I'm from. Now, I want you to notice one thing. Whenever Jesus' Nazarene origin is thrown in his face, he never goes for proof to prove that he was actually born in Bethlehem. That's not his point. He always takes them back to the fact that he has come from heaven. And notice what he says. I have not come of myself. Now, they think he's come from Nazareth to promote himself. Because they really don't believe he's the Messiah. I mean, how can he be the Messiah? He may be doing miracles, but when the Messiah comes, no one knows where he's from. And we know where this man's from, so he can't be the Messiah. Follow the, the weird, twisted logic there. But they think he's come from Nazareth to promote himself. He's saying, no, I've come from heaven. I've been sent by God. Notice what he says there. I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true. He who sent me, that, that rings a bell. Look back up at verses 16 and 17. Jesus says essentially the same thing up there. Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but from him who sent me. Well, who has sent you? Look at verse 17. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know about the teaching, whether it is of God 
or I speak for myself. So he who has sent me is God. Hmm. The true God. Him who is he who is true. The real God. The God that you claim to know and to worship. But you don't. Look at the rest of verse 27. I mean, uh, uh, the rest of the verse there. Whom you do not know. We're right back to that same word. Know completely. Know intimately. Know thoroughly. Jesus says, I've been sent from the God that you claim is your God. I've been sent from the God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I've been sent from the true, real, living God. And you don't know him. Now that goes over really well. Look at verse 30. So they were seeking to seize him. Yet no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Now you've got not only the Jews wanting to arrest him and kill him. Now you've got the Jerusalem mob or the Jerusalem residents wanting to arrest him and kill him because he's insulting him. You, you're insulting us by saying we don't know God? Of course we know God. Hmm. Look in verse 29, Jesus says, the reason you don't know me, the reason you don't recognize me is because you don't know the Father. How can you possibly recognize the Son whom he has sent when you don't even know the Father? Verse 29 there. I know him because I am from him and he sent me. I know Yahweh. The miracles, my miracles, my expert understanding of his word that makes you marvel. That should convince you. But your ignorance of God keeps blinding you because you don't know him, you don't know me. Now, in the rest of verse 30 that we just referred to there, we have something that's going to become familiar as we continue to go through John. They were seeking to seize him, yet no man laid hands on him because his hour had not yet come. We're going to see it a little bit further on in this chapter. How they tried to arrest him, but his hour had not yet come. Who is in control of Jesus' death? He is. Who is in control of the hour that he will be arrested? He is. And his hour had not yet come. Now notice what it says down here. They were seeking to seize him, yet no man laid hands on him. That would be the priests or the people that were the, uh, the residents of Jerusalem. But there's also another crowd that's going to be trying to get him. And we'll see them in just a minute. But many of the crowd believed in him. Now we're talking in verse 31 about the residents of Jerusalem. Oh, excuse me. Excuse me. Not the residents of Jerusalem. We're talking about the pilgrims that have come to Jerusalem. So many of the crowd believed in him. Well, 
The Jews are trying to kill him. <clears throat> now the residents in Jerusalem want to seize him and if, if at the very least beat him up badly and drive him out of the town. But the pilgrims, many of the pilgrims, believe in him. Now, why are they believing in him? Because of the miracles. Because of the signs that they've heard about. The signs that they've seen out up in Galilee and other places. Now, their belief is a faulty belief. It's not going to last very long. But it's a belief that at least opens the door to true faith after the resurrection. Then look at verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering these things. The crowd, the pilgrims, whispering these things that they believed he's the Messiah. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Here we go again. Everybody's trying to arrest Jesus. Everybody's trying to lay hands on Jesus. Notice who's trying to do this. It's the chief priests and the Pharisees. It's the Sadducees uniting with the Pharisees. If you ever do a, a little study of the history of Judea and Galilee... The Pharisees and the Sadducees not only were religious enemies, they were political enemies. And they would actually assassinate one another's leaders. Good godly people. Say again. Oh yes. They were theologically opposed entirely. They were at opposite ends of the spectrum. But notice here, they unite to arrest Jesus. That sounds like somebody else. You remember when Jesus was arrested, they took him to Pilate. And Pilate found out that Jesus was from Galilee, so he sent him to Herod. And Herod tried to interrogate him, and Jesus wouldn't answer any of his questions, so they had him beat up again and sent back down to Pilate. And Luke tells us that prior to that, Pilate and Herod had been enemies, but they became friends that day over Jesus. Over their common antagonism to Jesus. And then in verses 33 through 36, we have the Jews confused again. The Jews, the third group here. Therefore Jesus said, for a little while longer I am with you. A little while. Six months. Now they don't know that. But this is the Feast of Booths. This is in the autumn. He's going to be crucified on Passover during the, the Passover week, which will be in the spring. It'll be six months later. So he says, for a little while, I am with you. Then I go to him who sent me. Then I'll be crucified. I'll be raised from the dead. And I'll return to the Father. I'll ascend back to the Father. You will seek me. And will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Jews then said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Is he intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this statement that he said? You will seek me and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Jesus, once again, is saying one thing. We keep hearing this over and over and over again in this gospel. Jesus is teaching one thing. He's saying one thing, and the people hear something entirely different. Jesus is saying, I'm going to be with you a little while longer, 
and then I'm going to return to heaven. What they hear is, I'm going to be with you a little while longer, and then I'm going where you can't find me. Well, is he planning to flee out of Jerusalem and, and out of Judea, out of Galilee, and go to Greece and teach the Jews who live among the Greeks? And if he's rejected by the Jews who live among the Greeks, is he planning to teach the Greeks? What's he talking about? What does he mean by where I am, you cannot come? Really, we could find him among the Greeks if we really wanted to. They're confused. They have no idea what he's really talking about here. It's interesting. They don't know where he's from. They don't know where he's going. They don't know much about him at all. And they want to kill him. They're still judging by appearance. But it's like Caiaphas who prophesied, didn't know he was prophesying when he said that it's expedient that one man should die for the nation and the whole nation not die. They're actually prophesying here. Now Jesus is not going to go to the Greeks himself. Jesus won't go to the dispersion, which is all of the Jews who have been living in the Gentile world ever since the Babylonian exile. Jesus himself won't go there. But after the day of Pentecost, the apostles are going to be sent out. And you remember what Acts 1.8 says? You will receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And they will go out. And one of those, Paul in particular, will go and teach the Greeks. So they don't realize what they're saying is actually going to happen later on through the apostles. But we get to the end of this and we say, what's the point? Lord, what are you getting at here in this portion? In verse 28, the Jews, the Jerusalem crowd, and many of the pilgrim crowd reject the Lord Jesus Christ because they don't know him. They don't know him. All of them are Jewish. All of them have been raised in the synagogue. All of them have been taught the scriptures from their youth. All of them have heard the story of Genesis and Exodus and how God saved his people out of slavery in Egypt. That was that good news of how God saved his people out of Egypt. And they could even recite portions of scripture from memory. They knew about God. They knew the facts about God. And they believed those facts about God, but they didn't know God. We're back to that same word that we saw earlier, to know. This isn't the knowledge that's gained from learning. That, that's another word. You know math. You know math, or you, you know a subject. 
that you've been taught in school. That's one word. This word means to know to such an extent that it affects you. One uh, lexicon that I used called it intuitive knowledge. And I said that didn't help me a whole lot. But it affects you. This kind of knowing governs your attitudes. This kind of knowing governs your behavior. When you know God with this kind of knowledge, when you really know God, and it sounds so weird, I give Melody a hard time about using the word really. I mean, that was really good. Well, if you didn't say really, would that mean it was bad? I mean, if it's good, it's good. But all I can say is here, it, this is a knowledge that really knows. That when you know God, you fear Him. When you know God, you trust Him. When you know God, you're grateful to Him. When you know God, you marvel at His mercy and His grace. This is a personal knowledge. This is an intimate knowledge. And to me, it sounds like it's closely related to faith. The Jews knew about God. That He's holy, He's all-powerful, He's all-knowing, He's sovereign. But it didn't affect their hearts. They knew about God the way King Saul knew about God. God, uh, King Saul could refer to God and talk about God and say truthful things about God, but he didn't know God. He didn't know God like David knew God. It's like Isaiah said, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Therefore, Jesus says, where I am, that is where I'm going to be. It's as if I'm already there. Where I am, you cannot come. Because you don't know God. You have no faith in God. You don't trust God. All you know is the facts about God. But you don't know God. And you don't know me. Because I am the only means that God has given for you to be saved from your sins. And you reject me. You reject your only way to get to where I'm going to be. Remember in John 1.12. He came to his own and his own received him not. But as many as received him. As many as welcomed him. To them he gave the right to become the children of God. Even to them who believed on his name. And because you don't believe in me, because you don't trust me, you cannot come where I am. You're going to die in your sins. Okay, well, that really doesn't talk to us yet. Let's talk to us now. Most folks in Baptist churches know about God. Coral knows about God. Jackson knows about God. Our little girls know about God. They know the truth about God. You could, I'm sure you could ask them some of the Bible stories they've been taught. And they can tell you truth about God. They'll tell you that nobody made God. And they don't understand it any more than we understand it. But nobody made God. He's always been and he always will be. But for most, I, I'm afraid that for many folks, I said most, but let me change it to many, that for many folks in Baptist churches, that's all they know is facts about God. I'm concerned that they don't know 
him. The God that they know so much about, they don't know. And the evidence is they don't want to know him. Because knowing him takes time. If you're going to know anyone, it takes time. It takes time to read his word regularly. It takes time to pray regularly. It takes time to come on Sunday morning to a Sunday school class and listen to the word of God explained to you. It takes time then to sit in a worship service and hear the word of God explained to you. It takes time to come back on Sunday night and hear the word of God explained to you. It takes time to come maybe during the week and pray to the Lord or to hear his word explained to you. And it's interesting what percentage of the crowd that's there on Sunday morning in worship, how many of them were in Sunday school? And for those who were in the worship service, how many of them will be back Sunday evening? And of those who are in the worship service on Sunday morning, how many will be back on Wednesday evening? And you ask them some very basic doctrinal questions, just basic Christian doctrine, and you get some weird answers. Or, I don't know. That proves they don't know God. They don't want to know God. Because they don't think they need to know God. They want just enough religion to keep them out of hell. And they're satisfied with that. I'll endure a one hour session on Sunday morning if that'll keep me out of hell. It won't. But that's what many think. They're like a husband who marries a wife. And he appreciates all that she, he can, that she can do for him. She can cook his food, wash his clothes, clean his house. She can satisfy his sexual appetite. And he appreciates that. But he has no interest in getting to know her. He doesn't want to spend any more time with her than is absolutely necessary to get what he wants out of her. One of these sounds like one of those arranged marriages that we hear about in the Middle East or in, in Asia. For him, his wife is only a resource. Or if you're in New England, a resource. She's not his dearest friend. And she's not desirable for her own sake. Follow me? If the Lord Jesus Christ is only a resource, just to give you the stuff you want, how, is, how are you any different from the crowds in Galilee that followed Jesus just to get the stuff that they wanted? To be healed. To be fed. To be entertained. Wow! Did you see what he just did? Let's sit here and wait for the next miracle. Let's wait for the next healing. This is great stuff. And they were lost. Because they didn't know him. They really weren't interested in him. They just wanted the stuff that he could give them. And this is where I conclude. May the Lord be pleased to use us to make the wonder, the delight, 
the desirableness, the sometimes just jaw-dropping amazement at our God. He made us. He knew what we are, not just what we were. He knew what we are from before the foundation of the world and he saved us anyway. He sent his son to bear our sins on the cross. And let me remind you, that means that Jesus went to hell in spirit. He suffered the, he didn't go to the literal hell, but he suffered the torments of hell, the wrath of the Father in his own body on the cross. He suffered as a man for lost men on the cross. He did that for us. He gives us eternal life. He'll never cast us away. He will always chastise us and bring us back to himself. He will always forgive us when we repent. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is mind-boggling. He gives us milk and wine without cost. He did it all. When he died on the cross, he guaranteed our eternal salvation. You were as good as saved then as you were tonight. Because the Holy Spirit was determined to convert us. I may get a lot of kickback on this, but there was no way, if you're one of the elect, there is no way you could have been lost. Because he was determined to save you. All that the Father has given me will come to me. How can you not want to know him? How can you not want to get to know him? And yet... So many who profess to be Christians have no interest in getting to know Him. May we be the ones that the Lord uses. This, 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 I almost said this little flock. We're not a little flock. We're an infinitesimally tiny flock. May the Lord use us to spark in the souls of those whom the Lord has redeemed a desire to know Him. To their eternal joy. And to his eternal glory. Amen. Father, use us. Knowing you is life. So use We're alive in you. So please use us. To teach your word. To love our neighbors as ourselves. To explain patiently to those who oppose. But to always be ready to give an answer to those that you stir up. So that they might know what it means to know you. And that you would use us to give them an appetite to know you. We ask this for your good pleasure. In Jesus' name, amen.
Would you stand with me, please? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. And we are dismissed. <laughs>